Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. This episode features director Ewan McGregor's new film, American Pastoral. Based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning Philip Roth novel, the film follows Seymour Swede Lvov, a successful businessman and former high school athlete who lives an idyllic life with his wife, a former beauty queen, and his beloved teenage daughter. When a stunning act of violence is blamed on Swede's missing daughter, he must confront the realities of her radical political activism as he searches for her. Following a recent membership screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. McGregor discussed the challenges of making American Pastoral with director Mike Mills, who directed Mr. McGregor in the 2010 film Beginners. In the conversation, Mr. McGregor describes holding private rehearsals on set with only his actors, how he approached directing the other actors while performing opposite them in the same scene, and how the lessons he learned as an actor from other directors like Mr. Mills have informed his own directorial process. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Um, I had the great joy of directing Ewan in a film called Beginners, and I can just tell you that everyone in the world falls in love with him in a very genuine way. Dogs, people, everyone. <laughs> and I did too. And uh, I'm so honored that you asked me to do this, and I'm so proud of you, I have to say. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so we're going to do, I'm going to ask them some questions, we have a conversation, then um, they said not to do Q&A with you all, but we said, let's do it. <laughs> no one, you know, directors don't take direction very well. Um, <laughs> so we thought it'd be fun, right, to open it up a little bit at the end, so we're going to do that. Um, the, the thing that struck me the most, well, there's a few things, but your filmmaking is just like so mature feeling and so restrained and like so many scenes you cover just with one shot, and it had like a... Edward Hopper kind of painterly thing to me and it really kicked in once Mary left to me the filmmaking got so strong and uh, there's that one scene where Jennifer Connelly saying bring her back what's she saying I want her back yeah I wanted to come home now no 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 it just um that was such a gorgeous shot how did you go how did you get such a mature filmmaking style so quickly um well I think it's uh, the kind of cinema that I love it's the kind of cinema that I th I thought was demanded by the story, by the script. I couldn't really see it any other way. I learned a lot. I mean, but the first the first big decision, of course, is who's going to shoot it for you, who who's going to be your DP. And I had a list of um, three people, two of whom I'd worked with before, one of those per persons twice, and uh, one of those directors I'd worked with on a film that that was directed by the actor. That I was in, you could be able to work that one. That, well, that was out, and then and then Martin, who I had never worked with before, and uh, Martin Rua is a, the cinematographer of this film, 
And um, I'd seen and loved some of the films that he made. He made Control with Anton Corbin and The American. And uh, But it was a small film that he made. In, it was an independent British film that he made called Harry Brown, starring Michael Caine. And it was a very... Um, cute idea about an old age pensioner who t uh, turns vigilante and in takes on the yobos in his council estate that he lives in. And um, the very first shot of that movie is a, is a handheld iPhone shot with somebody on a scooter and someone's shot. And then we go into the bedroom of Michael Caine, who we don't, haven't met yet. And there's a, probably about eight or nine shots. There's a shot of Michael waking up rolling over and we see what he's looking at in the side cabinet. There's a little picture of a woman who's not in his bed and there's uh, some pills, and then we see him's face, and then we're under the bed and his feet come into shot, and then we're in the kitchen as he's making eggs, and then there's two shots as he's eating alone in a kitchen. And by the end of these six or seven or eight shots, I felt like I knew everything I needed to know about this character, and so I felt like at that point, this is the guy I need. I want, I want somebody that's storytelling like this, because I'm a beginner and I, I am... I've been thinking in shots for 25 years and acting for them, but I've been thinking towards the camera and not from behind it. So um, I needed somebody that was going to be uh, a great storyteller visually for me. And then also somebody I've, I've also witnessed, sadly, I guess, on, on set with some first time directors where they fall out with the DP because of their inexperience and their, um, you know, you're necessarily going to say some stupid things as a first time director. And uh, DPs sometimes don't take, I don't know, I've just seen that relationship go south. And it's very uncomfortable for the actors, and, it's, and I just couldn't risk that uh, because I was going to be stepping out in front of this person's camera. So I felt when I met Martin that he was going to be a perfect partner, and it turned out exactly to be that, a real buddy and a real, you know, we really made this film together, and um, that was wonderful. And I suppose how we came up with the shots was... We spent um, 10 days of the prep working it out. We didn't, I didn't want to storyboard because I, I, I've never really enjoyed seeing storyboards on set. I don't like the sort of nature of crossing them out and it feels to me a bit like painting by numbers. I, I can understand why they might be important for action sequences and what have you, but on a, for, an, uh, for an acting scene to see storyboards always takes, robs the experience of the magic to me as an actor, so I didn't really want to do that. But I did not want to not have any idea of what I was doing. So having found all the locations, and of course, when you're looking at locations, you're imagining the scene playing out in there. That helps you to choose them, doesn't it? So I had a sort of sense of how the, the scenes might play. And we just sat with a whiteboard, and I drew up every, um, f like a floor plan of this set, of this, or, the, or the location, and then literally would say, okay, I imagine myself standing in the doorway and Dakota's sitting in the window and I can see that I might go to the bed and she might join me and then I'll leave. And so we would we would then set about thinking about the shots. How, do we want the camera to move? Do we want it still? Do we want um, French overs or this overs? Or what? We would make decisions really based on this idea of the blocking and then I would... Sorry, I'm, this is a very, very I'm long fascinated. answer. Yeah. Uh, but uh, then, then I, but I was always with the understanding that this blocking was just my idea, and of course, because it's my idea, it doesn't have the input of the the other people in the scene. And so, when we got to set, I would always clear the set and rehearse alone with the actors, which was quite amusing at first because the first would call out director, actor, rehearsal, everyone take five, go and get coffee, 
and we'd, me and Jennifer would walk on the set and close the door and there would just be the two of us, you know. <laughs> we sort of snigger like we were getting away with something. And then we would start with my idea. I'd always say, this is what I thought it might be. Uh -huh. And then we would try it. And if it worked, great. We would just shoot it like that. And if it didn't, we would, we would spend as long as it took to find the scene together. And I really mean that, together, you know, and... Um, and then, but because we'd gone through the process, Martin and I, we had this, we knew the, the, we knew how the scene should feel. If it was going to be a scene with lots of coverage that we needed, when we want, the scene was in a place in the story where we wanted a, a bit of pace, uh -huh. then we would already have that knowledge. Or if it was going to be in one, we would sort of have that feeling. And, you know, that's how we came about it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I can imagine you, um, having such act, so much acting experience, having instincts about how to block it when you're alone with your DP, and that's like, I would never have that. So that's kind of fascinating right. to hear. Right. But then, like, how, how often did it change, or how often did it stay what, you, what your intuition thought it might be? I, I, I mean, I, my, my, I don't really remember. It's probably as often as it worked, it didn't. Right. I mean, quite a lot of it. And it also changed with the actors. Some, some actors want to be more... Um, uh, involved uh, or 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 would it would change with the Dakota for instance was very, would really often would just was very happy with what I'd imagined yeah yeah and um, and it would work and and she's the kind of actor that would make it work and then um, but in the scene where we're outside the train station and uh, it was funny it was written in the script that she run away from me at that point halfway through that scene where the cop comes up behind her and tells us about the curfew. It was a script, a, a script direction that she runs away from the Swede and he runs and grabs her in the rain and turns around and the policeman comes up behind them. And she said, first of all, it was really raining and it was going to make it complicated and we didn't have very <laughs> much time and it was like, we're going to have to dry our hair between every take. And so sometimes these things affect uh, what we, how we decide to block it. But she, was, she just said, look, this is the only time in the movie where I tell you the truth, I'm telling you why I'm so angry. I'm telling you what I'm fighting for and against. Why would I, at this point, run away from you? Right. And I had, don't forget that later. Yeah. And I had, to, I, I had to say I agreed with her. I went, I, I, or at least I didn't have an answer. I went, yeah. I don't know. So we just totally changed that the, to keep it underneath the parapet. And, then, and that was an uh, absolute example of the, of the actor's input, you know, Right. Creating, creating the scene. Right. I love the idea of you guys, just you and Jennifer Connelly alone in a room together, the crew locked out on the other side of the door. Yeah. That sounds dreamy. Um, <laughs> uh, as it, not because she's a beautiful woman, because uh, just creatively, it, it sounds like you have so much freedom and such privacy and sets are off in such a um, unionized public space. No, it's yeah. good. I've, I learned it, I have to say, right from the word go. Uh, Danny Boyle rehearses like that. And with Danny, we would always have had a week's rehearsal, like full week's rehearsal as actors. And then for Shallow Grave, that involved living together. And um, and it wasn't a week where he was also doing scouts and camera tests and stuff. And I, I didn't have that luxury because our actors came a week before. And it's sort of the way I asked for it to be. Right. Because um, I didn't know exactly... I knew that's how we would get there as actors on set. I didn't... I didn't. I didn't want to do like a week's blocking rehearsals with the actors. I don't know why. I just didn't. So, we didn't. We had like evenings, table reading, and discussing scenes during the week of camera tests, of which we had many for old age makeup and young makeup and blah blah blah. 
And then um, we had a sort of solid morning's rehearsal on, on the final Friday in the house, because the house was the first thing that we shot. The sequence was, uh, we shot in the house for 10 days um, first. Mm -hmm. So so I had the luxury of like rehearsing all the scenes that happen in the house, in situ in the house, which was already dressed and ready to go. And, and when, um, when you say rehearse, like how deep into it are you? You're doing the script exactly, or you're playing around, or? No, we would on our feet. Mm -hmm. uh, we would get on our feet and we pretty much, you know, the scenes weren't long enough for people not to, you know, after two or three goes at it, people had their scripts down on the on the settee or whatever, and we were we were rehearsing the scene. We were blocking, doing blocking rehearsals, right? And, it sounds and like making decisions, I guess, about how the scene would then um, be played out. But then, when when those when we came to those scenes again, when we shot them, we didn't forgo the rehearsal. We still rehearsed again, right? And um, that was just something that I believed in, and and I'd learned from experience. It's helpful. It's absolutely the best way to get the best work from your actors. And I know that because I am one and I won't give you my best work because I'm not inspired enough if I walk on set and the first assistant shows me a, a tape mark on the floor and says, that's where you're standing. Because my answer is always like, how do you know? You know? <laughs> I, so I, I, when you're approaching your first movie, as many of you here will have done, it's amazing how many people start to give you advice about directing your first movie. It's like when you're pregnant. Right, when right. pregnant. Yeah. Lots of directors and lots of people who have never directed anything give you advice. <laughs> but one director who's a friend of mine, someone I know, said to me, he said, yes, just, just get it blocked out and get everything organized, get the cameras in place, get it all locked down before the actors get on set so they can't fuck it up. <laughs> and I said, I am an actor. What are you talking about? You know, it's sort of the opposite way of that uh, I wanted to do it. You know yeah. what I mean? Really? Yeah. yeah. So when you, okay, so you, you rehearse it and then you rehearse it again, like weeks later, perhaps, just yes. to keep it warm or what, what happens in that just second you're, rehearsal? Because you're just, a, well, I mean, we did this in Beginners as well. It's just because you're just about to shoot it and you have to, ever, something will be different, mm. whether it's the lighting or... Um, the, the, the set wasn't dressed when you were there the last time. Mm -hmm. You need to explore the scene as an actor. And, the, and, and all, very often you find the detail of the scene then when, when there's magazines on the table, when there's coffee in the jug, when you, know, you, you can actually explore how you're really going to do it. Right. And, um, and it's just always best to do that alone with the director because then it's just private. And then you're really allowing the actors to explore. We can't do our best work being watched by the crew. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, I don't know, it's a sort of miscomprehension that we're actors and we just love to show off to everybody. I mean, partly that might be true, but um, when we're working and putting a scene together, it's, you can't, it's like with the, sorry, with the um, <laughs> B-roll people, the making of people, how can you rehearse with these guys <laughs> filming you? Like it's being filmed and you, we're actors and so we're not going to try stuff that's not going to work. And part of rehearsing is trying stuff that doesn't work right. uh, and feeling safe to do so. And um, that's best done alone, I think, with yeah, the director. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's interesting how much you're, you're informed, obviously, by your long acting career when you're coming to this and everything you're saying is like very actor-friendly. Uh -huh. Like what... Did anything surprise you when you became the director, or, or and also in your head on the shoot day, how do you toggle back and forth between the director and the actor? Yeah, I um, 
But the surprise question first. I'm really yeah. Curious, well, like... I, my fear was that I would have, I would be of no use. You know, that I wouldn't have the words. That I that I wouldn't have anything to. That I might not know what to say. I mean, I don't know. I guess that's I've seen that in the eyes of many first time <laughs> directors. You know, I'd be much more gentle with the next one I work with for sure. But um, I didn't want. I never wanted that to happen, and I I also never wanted to give the note for the sake of giving the note. You right, know, right? Because I know what that feels like as an actor too. Um, so I suppose the surprising thing was, in actual fact, how it became. Um, it's the thing I've always known. I mean, I love acting and I love actors and I um, I love, you know, taking words and making it something that we can watch and feel from, you know. Mm -hmm. So that, of course, came quite naturally. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the giving of the note to your acting partner is not a natural situation. It's not, it's a sort of big no-no. And um, I would never do that as an actor. I would never, ever dream of telling the other actor what to do because... Clearly, that is just an instruction to them about something that doesn't work for me. Right. It's a selfish thing to do. It's a very ungenerous thing to do, and I would never do it. But in this situation, I had to do it. It was my job also to do it. So I had to find a way in which to direct the actors so it didn't feel like they were being judged by me. Right. And um, I and I, and I I I I also had an incredibly um, proficient and skilled cast. That I didn't. I never was really giving notes based on like judgment. It was really much more about steering the scene. Uh, as, you know, as a conductor, might a piece of music like the, the the piece of music is being played by the orchestra, and the people in the orchestra can play the oboe and the viola better than me. But I want the music to feel like my right. uh, interpretation of the piece of music. So it was much more that kind of direction, really. Um, I guess other than with the children, with the young girl, uh, Ocean, who played ha who played Mary as a little girl, of course, when you're directing children, it is much more about how how you want things done, right. and with the stutter, making sure that sometimes the, the stutter would just wouldn't ring true, and then you would find have to find another word for her to stutter on, or a, right. the right sound, or something. Right, right. Then it became a bit more, but not not really with my cast. So, so like. And I can imagine that your, your actors are so great. And like the scene that one of the scenes that really blew me away is um, uh, Jennifer Colley in, in the hospital when she's saying, "How did I end up here?" And the, her whole that long sort of story of her life, and I believe it's in one sort of track-in shot. Yeah, a her. lot of it. Yeah. So like in a scene like that is so intimate and so soft, and what she's getting to as an actor is just so vulnerable and soft and open. And she's looking at you, and you're both the husband and the director. Mm -hmm. That seems like a challenge. Like, yeah. how did you pull that off? Because it wasn't by then, you see, because by then we'd we'd been shooting for some time by then, and so I think this, I think it just becomes very inclusive. I would like to think. I think the actors. I mean, I've heard them say in this situation that they felt. I I, I, don't, I hope they're not just being polite <laughs> because I'm sitting there, but. Um, I think it became quite inclusive and satisfying mm -hmm. artistically and creatively because, uh, you know, I am an actor and I was and I was in, in the scene with them. And I felt, you know, when you asked about, you know, splitting yourself, I, I never almost felt like I did really because I would have the conversation with the actors and then just do the scene with them as opposed to having the conversation and walk away behind a monitor with away right. from them right. i was had this sort of luxury of being in it yeah and i found that the days where i 
didn't direct. I had three days at the end of the schedule where I, I didn't direct at all, like the, the funeral scene and the reunion scenes I'm not in. And those were sp spread over three days and they were our final three, three days. And um, I found that that to be the almost, because it, because I'd got used to also the routine yeah. of um, acting and directing at the same time. And I find that to be the trickiest days, right. really, you know. So it sounds like the being in the scene added to the intimacy you yeah. had with the actors and like your shared turf. Yeah, we, instead of a division. Yes. Yeah. That's I, I, really I got to start think, acting clearly. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I do. I do. I, I. I mean, I do think it's not a bad idea. <laughs> I'm not joking <laughs> for all of it? you, for anyone. <laughs> yeah. I did some. Uh, I did a long, long time ago in Britain. I did uh, some work with uh, directors at the at the um, film school in Beaconsfield, and I went and I just worked with directors, uh -huh. on, and they made them act. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's not a bad idea to just know what it feels like and. Um, Oh, oh no! I, uh, the film I made with Rodrigo Garcia uh, recently, "Last Days in the Desert," I had scenes where I was playing two characters in that movie, and my good friend Nash Edgerton, who's a stunt great filmmaker and stunt coordinator and stunt man, and he he was doing our stunt arranging for the film, but he also asked him to play opposite me when I was doing the scenes with myself, if you know what I mean. So I, in the film, I was playing Jesus and the devil, and so I would start by uh, first of all, I rehearsed with him there were some very long scenes and I'd sit at night with him and he put in all this effort and work learning both parts with me and I learned both parts, obviously. And so I would play Jesus and he would play the devil and I was playing it to him. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes they were over his shoulder, sometimes not. And then we would swap places and costume or whatever. And now I was the devil and he'd be Jesus and we would shoot the scene again. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was putting in all this effort and I said to him, I said, uh, one night, I said, I feel really bad because... You're going to get cut out. You're, you're, you're <laughs> doing all this work and none of it's going to be seen. Yeah. And uh, he said, no, he said, listen, it's perfect for me because I, I really want to know what it's like to act. I, I'm a, I want to, yeah. for my directing. And so he did all this effort and I really appreciated that, that he was, yeah. put himself on the line like that. Yeah. So, but, so coming from such a felt... Uh, inclusive actor's perspective, your film is still like so visually rigorous and so beautifully lit and so beautiful, so poised. Mm -hmm. It's not like a messy film at all, or like um, how that again, it's very striking, especially if you're staying so in the scene, you're staying so with the other actors. How did you maintain the sort of visual rigor of your filmmaking? Partly because of that work that we did in the prep with Martin and I. I think partly because that's how I like to be shot, maybe. Uh-huh. <laughs> maybe that's how it feels, what it feels like. What does that mean? It's very satisfying to have the camera on you and you know where it is and it's there and you and you know that the right your job is the you're the storyteller. When the camera's flying around and and you don't know quite where it's at and um when you feel that everybody, well, the, the the camera is being given the job of storytelling, right? It's less satisfying as an actor, right? That makes sense. And so maybe my, maybe it reflects how I like to be shot. Yeah, yeah. But um, also the films that I like, you know, the the, I mean, you're, you we shot like this in Beginners with the, especially with the father mm -hmm. story with Christopher Plummer and I this this classic, beautiful frames. 
and where they really were, and films like, I was inspired by uh, Leviathan, the Russian movie, mm -hmm. uh, Force Majeure is another film, mm -hmm. uh, The Graduate, mm -hmm. where the camera's... A little wider. Yeah, and where, the, the Graduate's more interesting because often there's a lot of, um, this, the, they, they played with things blocking the image and sometimes mm. then an actor would be, reveal himself from behind a shoulder or something in the, in the foreground. But I, And I couldn't be as brave as any of those films I mentioned in a way because I, th I felt like the story demanded, um, I did do close-ups, I did do coverage right. on actors. and But I did choose to make some of the scenes play in one shot. You're, I feel like almost all your most dramatic, most key, most pivotal things, which most people cover a lot, you, at least you ended up with one shot. Uh -huh. A lot of them. Or very minimal coverage. Yeah. Which is very beautiful and gave a lot of space for the performance. And also this, the frames are so beautiful and did remind me of like sort of classic American 70s sort of filmmaking. Right. Um, I also watched, I watched it this afternoon with my little girl. My One of my kids, Esther, hadn't seen the film and we watched it this afternoon. And it reminded me of the films I used to watch when I was a kid. Like old, like much older films from the 30s and 40s maybe, like, you know, old romantic Hollywood movies where, and I was thinking, because there is one scene in the film where we where we built a set, there were very few sets built, but, and I won't tell you what they all were because it doesn't matter, but one of them was just, um, we, we built a three-sided set mm -hmm. and it was slightly raised and it was in the corner of a studio where we were shooting some other stuff. And uh, when we filmed it, it looked like old Hollywood. It just looked like, you know, it was li literally a room with a ceiling and three walls, and then all the crew standing out where the fourth wall should be. It just felt right, really old-fashioned. Mm -hmm. And um, and I, th I was thinking about that this afternoon as I was watching the film, that, that that inspiration when I was a child, I was just obsessed with old black and white movies, be it from Hollywood or Ealing comedies or um, whatever, and, and romantic movies mainly, I think. And um, there's something about this, in it reminded me of that today for the first time. Mm -hmm. Films like um, The Philadelphia Story or Harvey or something, uh -huh. where they are sort of theatrical in a way, and the, yeah. the camera's mainly on one axis because there's no there's nothing behind the camera, you know what I mean? Yeah. Now your lighting was like that. It's very sort of down with a sort of a soft key and people are very central, and it's very sort of monolithic in a great way that I thought was, again, like very brave, I thought, for a first-time director to, to, to be that, like, restricted in a way. Yeah. Um, I want to ask how your experiences with other directors sort of influence you. You've met so many amazing directors, and do have you been like putting stuff in your toolbox all these years to apply here, or did you end up just sort of using your intuition? Where I feel like you're working with you, I know how intuitive you are. Ultimately, mm -hmm. like you're an analytic person, when it comes to the day, it's like your heart and soul is what speaks. Um, was that at play, or was how much did all the directors you worked with influence how you worked? I think it's got to be totally, all of them, uh, I mean, for good and bad, I think. And it's very much about how, I, how it feels, you know. I think, I think in terms of what kind of director you're going to be, you don't know until you're mm. there. Uh, and I, I mean, in, in prep and in, um, certainly on set, I sort of... I think the, the directing is so much about character. It's really, you know, my the favorite people that I've worked with and my whole work totally differently, you know. Yeah. And I've worked with people that might seem to be incredibly restrictive and everything I'm not talking about tonight. I can think of a couple of people I've worked with that are very like that, but still I loved 
working with them because of them, because of their character or their soul or something. And so it's difficult to... So I, I, techniques I picked up, like I say, with Danny and the rehearsals, because that's what works best. And you did that, and that's what works best. I just know that gets the best work out of people. I got asked yesterday at um, a screening if I got pushback about rehearsing that way. And um, I, I said, well, if, uh, no, but I, I said, but, uh, but also if you didn't rehearse that way, what, what, how would anyone know what we were shooting? Mm -hmm. Like, how can you know what you're shooting if you don't rehearse? Mm -hmm. I don't understand. So, um, and then, I, and then, I, then I just, I, I, you know, I loved it. I loved the position I was in because I've wanted to do it for so, so long. Mm -hmm. And I've also always sort of felt like a filmmaker as an actor. I, I like to know what the crew are doing. There's part of my brain that's very aware if the focus puller's on a very long lens and with a small depth of field. And as an actor, I want to be involved in the emotional side of my character's journey and the technical side of making sure that that emotional journey is on film mm -hmm. and usable at the end of the day. And so... Um, I've always felt sort of interested, and I and I'll speak to DPs, and I'll mm -hmm. speak you to designers, every, and you come in and you kiss everybody on the set. <laughs> it's very, really very sweet that you you know everyone's name like right away, and um, I can imagine you you have a consciousness of the set that I can imagine easily turning into a director. I just got told we have. Okay. Just a little bit time left, and we said we were asked okay. questions. Does anybody have a wow? You win. Did you guys hear the question? From the time he read the script to the time he watched it with an audience for the first time, how much was was it what you thought it was going to be? Like from the initial thing, that's a good question. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I I can be honest. On the very last day of the sound mix, um, no, sorry, the second last day of the sound mix, we uh, watched the whole movie, and from start to finish, to allow ourselves the Friday, which was my last day on the movie, to work any notes that we had. And I sat on that Thursday and I watched the movie and I had a big, big smile on my face at the end because I really felt, there it is, that's the film I wanted to make. I really, I was never compromised into like cutting stuff I loved or putting stuff in I didn't like or I was, I was um, supported all the way. And, um, and I really, you know, there's always going to be something. There's always going to be a thing or a sound or something that if I'd only... And there's a couple of things in it, but really, um, I would say 97% of the movie is the one I wanted to make, and I consider that to be pretty good. That's Super a pretty good. good uh, Super good. Yes? So she, her question is, um, it really moved her in the relationship at the time, but what was it that made you want to make the movie, and the movie had so much heart, and how did you connect to that, maybe? Well, I think um, there's. I think the the truth is, is that my girl. I've got four daughters, and um, and I, I had an opportunity to make a film about a daddy and his girl, and uh, I could see lots of things in the script that I that I mean, I've not. I, I haven't suffered anything like the sweet and Mary go through, but I've had little. There's things in my life that I can see. What my eldest daughter Clara was um, probably 15 or 16 when I first read the script. And so part, somewhere in my mind, I must have been readying myself for her leaving to call, you know, leaving home. And um, that's a loss. And, and this is a story about a father losing his daughter. And so maybe that's why I was so locked into it to begin with. 
And um, of course, now she's in her third year at university. You know, she's I've been through it, and uh, I, but I think it's that I think that and uh, and the and the family. You know, the I I just there was some so, so many familiar things in it to me. I've been in the kitchen between my wife and my daughter trying to keep the peace. I've I've learned to just side with my wife. Um, <laughs> whatever. Um, <laughs> But uh, I don't know, there was a lot, but, and also I felt for them, I felt for these people, I felt for these characters really hard when I read the script. And one of the things that I just quickly, I would say that I, I sort of felt about um, the amazing people that I got to make the film with was Dan Clancy, the production designer, Lindsay McKay, the costume designer, Judy Chin, the makeup designer, um, Jason Sika did our hair, Martin Rua. They managed to create a period in the film without it becoming like a barrier between us and these people. And I, I was really proud, I'm really proud of that. I think that, you know, that was something I really wanted for the period always to be right, but not for it to be very, I didn't want to it ever to look like a period movie, really. And because um, I wanted to, f I wanted to feel for these people the way I felt for them when I read it. And they did an amazing job at that, you know, with uh, the, the budget we had and um, the challenges we had with locations and streets and exteriors and, um, you know, trying to make a street 1954 one minute and 1973 the next, you know. Yeah, well that I think that compassion came across in your performance and the whole filmmaking. Should we do another question? Let's go like far back. Yeah, you please. How how did you do your casting and what was your budget? That's a personal question. The yeah. budget part. <laughs> I'll, I'll defend you on that. You don't have to answer. I that. don't have to answer the budget. I think one, people I? would be. People who paid for it would be angry at you. I could tell you as a director. Yeah, yeah. We had $140 million. Um, <laughs> the the uh, casting was an amazing... I loved that process very much. I was very, very fortunate to have Jennifer Connolly and Dakota, who'd been cast with me when I first joined the project to play the Swede, you know, three years before we got on set. And um, my first job as director was to go and meet... I'd met Dakota once because I was going to be playing her dad, and I, I, I arranged to meet her in New York, and we had coffee, and... Just got just to say hello to each other, really. And then Jennifer, I'd never met, and Jennifer, in fact, had been attached to this film over ten years ago in its very first iteration when it didn't happen, and then came back to it again when you know when I joined in Dakota. So my first job was to go and meet both of those actors and ask them if they'd kindly stay. You know, now that I was directing it, and they didn't have that I, I was a total unknown quantity as a director, so they'd have been in the rights to not stay, but. Um, Thank God they did. And then the rest of the casting, Molly Parker was also cast as the as the doctor. And I met Molly and I really liked her. I didn't feel any need to uncast her. She's brilliant. And then everyone else, um, I worked with uh, Trish Woods and Deb Aquila. And we just, we just had great, great actors who were happy to be part of it. David Strathairn, Peter Regat had been in a film with my Uncle Dennis in the 80s, local hero. And... Um, he he'd been part of my life in a way. I didn't know Peter socially. I mean, personally, but he, that film was a big, big deal to me when I was growing up because my uncle was in the movie, you know. And I used to go to where they sh where they shot it on that beach. And uh, so when Peter Regat's name came up, I was couldn't see anyone else for Lou. Um, the children. The, so uh, Rita was a difficult part, part to cast because I really felt um, we and I read with a lot. I did auditions with a lot of Ritas and really brilliant actors, some really, really good ones. And I just never, I'd never felt 
that I met her. I never felt that she'd walked in the room. I had this, set, this sort of slight hunger left over. Like I, I was waiting, I hadn't found her. And um, we, we, we were getting quite late on the day and I could feel there was a sort of pressure to cast, you know, you've got to, you've got to cast someone eventually. And we had this meeting, um, Gary Lacazy, who's here, a producer, Tom Rosenberg and I met in, a, in Lakeshore's office and, and reviewed some of the favorite auditions that I'd done with some of our favorite Ritas. And I felt at that point, I was very close to casting the wrong person uh, because I felt like we should get on with it. And then just at that point, Trish just put in a DVD and she went, oh, well, there's, and there's this girl. <laughs> and she hit the, uh, and she'd been waiting because Valerie had sent, was doing a film in Vancouver and she'd sent a fil uh, first self-tape self in with, she had pink hair in this uh, piece that she was doing. And Trish very cleverly said, I'll do it again, just get a wig or something, don't have pink hair. Just in case, you know, with, uh, do you want everyone to be able to, not be challenged by something that isn't Rita with like pink hair. And um, so she'd been waiting for the second go. And oh my God, as soon as she started, I went, well, that's her there, that's her. So we cast her without ever having met. Yeah. Uzo was brilliant idea. Um, I think it's true that Vicky was probably written as a slightly older woman, but as soon as I uh, was given the, somebody mentioned Uzo, I suddenly thought it really worked. It worked. I like the idea that they maybe grew up together. You know, she might. She probably was working in the factory for Lou when she was a kid. You know, probably eleven or twelve. And I would have been around her all my life. So there's a sort of brother sisterly thing there, which I really liked having a younger um, Vicky. Yeah. We could go on and on, but it's really. <laughs> but in, in Toronto, when I when we premiered the film, and I had the honor of standing out on stage for the first time in my life. Uh, introducing a cast onto the stage, I, I, I did take a little look over to my right and go, hell, look at that. <laughs> look at that lineup. You know, it's quite a cast, isn't it? I was very lucky. Uh, I was a lucky boy. <laughs> um, this is fun. Should we do one more? I know we're a little yeah, late. Let's, let's do one more. Okay, yeah. good. He just said yes. Um, I'm gonna, how about back there since we're getting deeper? Did you always want to use narration, or is that something you came to? Yes, it's absolutely the structure. of. It's an odd structure in the book in that Philip Roth writes in his novel in three very clear sections. And the first section is all Nathan Zuckerman and uh, about his, his life, his recollections of the time. He's at the reunion. He goes into uh, when he first met, he talks about the Swede when he was as he recalls him as a young man, and then he had a meeting with him in his, when the Swede was older. And, um, and then, and then when, when he starts to write the story of the Swede's life at the end of that first section, the second and third sections of the novel are, I assume, what Nathan Zuckerman has written. So it's an interesting concept because the story that we are told in the novel is Nathan Zuckerman's fantasy of what the Swede's life was, not... I mean, he must have got some details from his brother and, and the research that a novelist would do. But um, at the same time, you know, he's, it's, it was interesting to me that he, he, he was telling us the story. And does he know that Mary asked her daddy to kiss her in a car? Or does he know that she saw the monk burning? I don't know. Maybe that's for us all to decide. But I like the idea of keeping him. And I like the idea of bringing him back at the end at the funeral, which doesn't happen in the novel. But I felt like it was really a, a, 
a nice, a beautiful thing to bookend uh, our story with the narrator. I think it's traditional. It seems to work very well in this. I like that Nathan stops telling us the story, and that could be the end of the film, but for the little coda when Mary arrives back at the funeral. I, I, I like that. And there was more voiceover throughout the movie from Nathan that I removed. I just, I just felt like he belonged at the beginning and end, and we didn't need to be reminded of him in the middle of the film somehow. You, we were talking earlier, you told me a really interesting thing about how you hadn't read the book for a while because you were casting the movie and you were waiting to see if it came about. And then after really getting into the, the influence that the actual novel had onto you and how it impacted the, how you wanted the characters to come across at the end, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I think it's, I think what I got, I mean, I, I, you're right, I, I didn't um, read the novel because uh, I was just busy, I'm a busy actor, and I was, I was cast in it and I loved the script and I was just waiting to know when we were going to shoot. There's a sort of necessary preparation for a part and reading the novel was very much part of that for me, but I didn't want to do it like uh, three years before we started shooting the film because I wouldn't remember things. So I was just waiting. And then of course, when I started thinking that I should direct the film, I started really living in his book and I, I became the director. And then from that point, I had nine months till we shot. And I just, every day I was reading, every day I was, there's a brilliant um, recording of the book by Ron Silver. And um, if I was driving, I had Ron t reading me the story. If I was running, I had Ron reading me the story. I sort of soaked it up. And I, and I, I suppose, I never felt like John Romano had missed anything that was, I didn't feel like there was, I wasn't looking for any other bits to go in the film. I really believed in the adaptation that John had written. But I, but I wanted the film to feel like, I wanted it not just for us to have borrowed Philip Roth's story, I wanted it to be representative of his book. And so I had to find him, his voice or his thoughts. And, and I, what, I, what I ended up feeling strongly about was the fact that he presents so many themes and ideas in the book writing about this family and writing about America at that time. And within all those themes, he writes so many different arguments and points of view. And I never felt like, because I was living in it, it's nine months is a long time to be reading and listening to the one story. But I always felt like every time I listened to a chapter or read a chapter, I, I was siding with somebody different. I was thinking, oh yeah, Miss, yeah Sheila, Dr. Sheila's got a point. Maybe that's right. And the next time I was just thinking, ah, Sheila's just a jealous character and she fancies the Swede and you know I just never and, and he never told me what to think so that's what I tried to do with the film with the characters was to un understand them I wanted to present Mary and understand maybe why she does what she does and I think Roth's giving us millions of ideas about what that might be but I give you some and I let you try to let you make your own mind up and Don you could argue in the novel is sort of somewhat written off in the at the end because of the facelift and the affair, and um, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to sort of somehow try and understand her. Dawn survives Mary in a way that the Swede doesn't. She, you could argue that she's got more strength than the Swede in a way because he's so stuck in his ways, and he he doesn't survive Mary, you know. So that was the sort of that was my Rothianness, I suppose, if I if there was any uh, that I gleaned from the book. Yeah, uh, I love the complexity and openness of everyone at the end and there wasn't any villains and heroes yeah. really that was really sweet right okay i know our dga friend is freaking out but let's just do one more question <laughs> come on uh, how about like way in the back oh. i know you're oh. asking i'm sorry but, like, right down the I know, but come on the people in the back are less empowered 
They've all got buses to go. No, here, look, you can go. Cause, uh, well, you know. yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, oh. Sorry. It's my fault. We'll you can ask later. me afterwards. Yeah. Okay. I tried to um, be, be careful not to... I, I spoke to Ben Affleck, who I've known a little tiny bit, and because uh, he, he directed himself in three movies at that point, four now, I think. And uh, I, I asked him about that. I watched also Don Cheadle... Uh, when I was on the set of Miles Ahead, I was working with Don when he was playing Miles Davis and directing me opposite him. So I learned a lot by watching Don. And um, But Ben's uh, advice was just to be careful not to... Un you, he said, you'll undercover yourself because the time will be ticking away. The l you'll be losing the light. And the first thing you'll do is like, okay, that's enough on me. You know, let's turn the camera around or whatever, or move on. And he said, if you're going to play the part, make sure that you don't end up in the edit room with not enough of you as that part, you know. Um, and so I did bear that in mind. And I didn't, and I did, I didn't, it's also a bit embarrassing in front of, an, uh, you're standing there in front of Jennifer or Dakota and you're like, okay, just one more in me, one more, <laughs> come on. And actually, fact, come a bit closer, just a bit, you know, it's a little, <laughs> it's a bit embarrassing. So, um, but I found what happened with me wasn't in the set, but in the edit. I um I didn't I I under I undercovered myself in the edit a bit especially in the last act of the film and I had a f couple of people see the film who said you want to you want to you want to be careful you're not the Swedes not present enough at the end of the film and uh, I went through with Melissa Kent our brilliant editor and we just did a pass really from the last half of the film on the, on the Swede you know just making sure and we put we ended a couple of scenes on me that we hadn't done before, and we put in I think two close-ups that we hadn't used before, and it just slightly upped the ante on and put Swede more in the in the in the middle of the story at the end, because you you just just tempted not to do it I guess because through embarrassment or whatever, but that was um that's how that's how I did it, and and I and I and I just think in terms of playing him. You know, because I I had that nine months of preparation where I only thought about American Pastoral. I mean, I had 18 months where I only thought about American Pastoral. But um, uh, in that nine months of preparation, I was um, dreaming the movie, you know, and, uh, and, and sharing that with my creative people, my creative people that I was making the film with. And at the middle of all of those thoughts and daydreams and, you know, decisions was the Swede because he's in most of the scenes. So I just felt like I was never more prepared to play somebody because I'd been thinking about him for so much. And um, and also I just felt like when I first read it, I just knew who I wanted him to be. So it wasn't a challenge somehow in a way to play him. It really, it wasn't. Well, thank you very much. A really huge round of applause to Ewan and his directorial debut. Thanks for coming. Thanks to Mike Mills for asking me the questions. Yeah. We hope you have enjoyed this DGA Q&A. Check out past episodes of the podcast by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts or at dga.org slash podcast. We'll have more episodes for you next week, so stay tuned. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to The Director's Cut on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.
This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.